If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify in him, in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay, your, you, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will crow till you have denied me three times. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Um, dear God, we thank you for your word that it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray that you bless the preaching of your word to um, be um, applied to our hearts and to our lives, that we may love each other as you've called us to love, and um, show us how we can do this in your power. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to be together. Uh, you may have noticed in your bulletin that uh, at our 8.30 service, we welcomed the Stowicki family into fellowship with uh, Christ Church. They are recent uh, uh, transplants from another part of the country and found uh, their community here in the Lord. Uh, it's always a, a momentous thing, you know, when we... Uh, you know, it's not just like joining a club. You're really giving and receiving of yourself. You know, they say, yeah, we're, we're going to be part of this community. And then the community speaks back and says, yes, we, we receive you as part of the community. And we promise to love you and enfold you and all of those things. Uh, Ravi Zacharias says the, the final bridge of the gospel, you know, he does a lot of apologetics, uh, college campuses, different places, says the final bridge of the gospel is that of community. Uh, the love of God working through us as a church where worship brings us together. Worship of God in the truth of the gospel brings together all of our inclinations uh, surrendered to God's sacred call for us. And it's this community then that's worked out in love and grace. As Jesus is talking with his disciples, we've been in this upper room uh, with him this last night as he is going to go out. Uh, Judas has just left. He's in the process of selling out the Lord, and um, Jesus is going to be arrested. He's going to be tried, more or less, and then he is going to go to a cross where he is going to be crucified, uh, experiencing the, the wrath of God against sin. As this is all taking place, Jesus is thinking about how to establish that community that is a bridge. How to establish that community 
by which all the world will know the authenticity of who Jesus is. It's really a momentous thing. I mean, when we think about it, you know, Jesus, if we had been alive during that time, we, we could have touched him. We, we could have talked to him. We could have shaken his hands. He could have washed our feet. We could have had that tangibility. Uh, now he has ascended. He is no longer with us in the same tangible way. He is with us, you know, by the Spirit. But the tangibility of who Jesus is is through the community. And it's really a remarkable thing to think what Jesus has done in giving us to each other, making us this community. And we want to dive into that over the next several weeks and, and continue to explore that. You know, the title of our, serve, of our series is The Imperfect Community. Uh, we, we recognize that we are not perfect in and of ourselves. It is Christ that works with us or works in us and through us. Uh, that makes the community the bridge that it needs to be. But nonetheless, he does organize us and work within this idea of community. And so I want to dive into that. These are Jesus' first words. When we talk about the upper room discourse, uh, properly speaking, it starts in 1331. Uh, the upper room experience started, of course, with chapter 13 as he washed the disciples' feet. And then as he predicted that Judas would betray, and you know, we looked at that all last week, Judas went out into the night, now starts from 1331 through the end of chapter 17, begins Jesus' teaching uh, and praying specifically for his disciples. And I think that what we have today in, in 31 to 38 is sort of an outline of some of the themes that are going to be coming back uh, to us as we engage this teaching throughout these chapters. Uh, and the way I thought to organize it today was starting with Peter, because we want to see what are the threats to our community. And, and specifically in Peter's case, it's this idea of, of confused uh, devotion. And then what is it that ties our community together uh, and specifically, as Jesus teaches us, it's, it's clarified in his death, right? That is the tie that, that binds the community. <coughs> and then finally, uh, what is the tide uh, that flows from the establishment of this community? Or what is the, the commanded multiplication? So you can choose your outline this morning. You can go T's, you can go M's, or you can go C's. Uh, it, it was a, a pick your own outline this morning, but that's kind of the thought flow as we as we go. So first of all, start with Peter, the threat. You you see the story, right? Jesus starts teaching them, and uh, he he begins with this idea that he is going to be glorified, and that verse thirty three. Yet a little while, I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews. So I now say to you also, where I am going, you cannot come. And then he starts to teach about love, but Peter doesn't hear that, right? Peter is, is locked on this idea that he can't go or he can't do uh, what he wants to with regards to Jesus. And so he says in verse 36, you know, um, Lord, where are you going? You know, what's the deal here? Why can't I follow you? And, and Jesus reiterates, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, uh, but later you will follow me, or, late, or you will follow me afterwards. 
And what Jesus is referring to here specifically is the journey to the cross. Uh, It was night. Judas went out into the night to betray Jesus. This was going to lead him to be arrested, to stand before the Sanhedrin, to be crucified, all of these things. Uh, And and Jesus is saying to Peter, it's not your time. You you can't follow me here. Uh, But you will afterwards, and it was true. I mean, Peter eventually was martyred himself. He was crucified. Uh, along with a number of other disciples who also followed Jesus to death. But right now, what Jesus is saying is, I have a role to play that you cannot play. Now, here's the thing. Peter doesn't like this. And this is where the threat to our community comes in. This is where Peter's, you know, devotion is confused. Uh, Peter, specifically, I want to suggest to you, you know, two ways stand forward that Peter sort of misses the boat. One is his own lack of self-awareness. Uh, you know, Jesus says, you can't do this, but Peter says, no, I, I can. We, we see it even more clearly in the Markin account of this same story where Peter is told that he will deny. Jesus is saying to the disciples, he says, you will all fall away, for as written, I will strike the shepherd. The sheep will be scattered. This is Mark 14. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. And Peter says to him, even though they all fall away, can you imagine being (laughs) Peter's friends? Like, these guys stink, uh, but I will not. I I will stay strong. Even though they all fall away, I will not. And then Jesus looks at Peter and he says, look it. Truly I say to you, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you, you, will deny me three times. You see, Peter lacks a certain self-awareness when it comes to his ability to follow and to obey Jesus. Peter believes that he is sufficient in and of himself. And in that way, I am a lot like Peter. Uh, I am a lot like Peter. I believe oftentimes that my capacities are enough to get me through Uh, the things that I have to do, whether it's parenting, uh, it'll get me through, whether it's my relationships with other people, my capacities, my EQ, my CQ, my IQ, all of these various cues, they'll they'll get me through what what I need to do. And like Peter, I lack a certain self awareness of my dependency on Jesus. You know, one of the ways that this shows up so clearly in our lives, and I think it shows up with Peter, is that we don't pray. We don't pray, at least with the desperation that we really need to be praying with. Uh, Paul Miller in his book, The Praying Life, says this. If you're not praying, then you're quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all that are needed in your life. Maybe you remember the Luke 22 account when Jesus is having this conversation with Peter. And and Jesus says to him, you know, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. You know, Jesus prays for Peter. Then later on in that same chapter, as as they go out to the Mount of Olives, you know, Jesus goes away to pray to his father. And he says to Peter, James, and John's, he says, Watch and pray with me so that you don't fall into temptation. And Peter what? Goes to sleep. 
He doesn't have the desperation. He lacks awareness of the need that he has for Jesus every second, every minute, every hour, every day. The constant 365 need for Jesus. Peter lacks that awareness. And I wonder, I wonder what it's like for you with regards to that. One of the barometers may be sort of the desperation of your prayer life. But Peter doesn't only lack uh, awareness. I'm going to also suggest to you that he leaks uh, sort of an anti-gospel ethos. You notice Peter says, why can't I follow you? You know, even though everybody's going to fall away, I, I will not. You know, I can do this, lacking awareness. But then notice what he says next. Uh, He says, uh, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Do you realize the irony of what Peter is saying? I mean, the, the tragic irony of what Peter is saying. I mean, the gospel is this. Jesus laid down his life for us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. There was no hope for us except that Jesus lay down his life. And Peter's saying, no, I'll take care of that. I'll lay down my life for you. And he's leaking this sort of anti-gospel ethos with regards to his life. And again, I, I can't distance myself from Peter too far here because I so often think about my sacrifices. I think about my sufferings. And either explicitly or implicitly come to God and I say, look what I've done for you. You know, look at what I, you know, look at my career choice. And maybe you hear your own voice in here. You know, I've chosen a profession where I can serve people. I I, I could have done something else. I, I could have been a hedge fund manager, you know, top floor, looking out over my empire. I could have done these. I've chose, I, I look at the relationships that I had. I could have pursued this girl or that guy, even though they didn't love the Lord, I could have done these things, but I've sacrificed for you. You owe me. And again, explicitly or implicitly, we find ourselves where Peter is, you know, not only lacking awareness of our own abilities and inabilities, but leaking this very anti-gospel. And incidentally, I mean, Peter's one of the band, right? This isn't necessarily something that's out there. This stuff exists within the church. Like these are attitudes that we easily inhabit. Uh, And and I think what Jesus' interactions with Peter are designed to do are to show us that as long as we are determined to inhabit those attitudes, we are not resting in the relationship and the love that he has come to give to us. And that's where the story goes, right? Because that's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about the gospel. He's talking about the fact that he came to die for us because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. The only way, the only way that we could have life is if he died for us. And that's what he begins to talk about. That's where he's going. That's the journey that he's on. That's why he's going away. It's because he knows that he needs to 
encounter the cross. He knows that, you know, as the wrath of God is poured out against the sins of the world that he freely takes upon himself, Jesus recognizes that that is the path. You know, that's why he says to Peter, he's like, you know, earlier Peter says, you're not going to wash me again. You know, a lack of self-awareness. Peter doesn't know that he needs to be washed by the Savior. Jesus says to him, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And when Jesus goes to the cross, clarified in his death, uh, clarified in his death, he provides the life that we could never attain on our own. Now, that is so inside out, upside down. I, you know, I don't know where you are on your journey with the Savior, because we are all related to the, to the Savior. We're all oriented to the Savior at some point along the way. Some of us are close. You know, we want to walk with the Savior. We're seeking to follow. Some of us are sort of middle ground. We're, we're positive to the Savior, but we've got our struggles. We're not sure how it's working out. Some of us are further back. You know, some of us are saying, you know, I see you out there, uh, I hear about you, but I'm just not so sure about following you. I'm not so sure where I relate to you. But I guess the, the thing that we all need to realize is that this is the central tenet to who Jesus is. Jesus is the God, the creator, that has come to save a wretched, broken people, a, a rebellious people. And he is inviting us to relate to him in that way. And so that's always a question. You know, we're going to come to the table a little bit later on in the service. And when we come to the table, it's not just an empty ritual. It's a profession of where you are with the Savior. Do I, am I walking with you? Am I putting my life, right, in your hands? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. And, and here's the second thing that is clarified in his death. You know, so first is the necessity of his death. The second thing is, this is the glory of God, right? You saw that there in the, in the opening verses that we read. Now, you know, at, at this moment, when everything is set into motion, when, when hell is going to have its fury against the Savior, now is the Son of Man glorified. So again, that is so strange to our uh, concepts because for us, the way up is the way up, right? As we, as we ascend the ladder of our jobs, as we ascend the ladder of our relationships, as we experience success after success, that is where glory is. But Jesus says, no, it's now. It, it's in the night. It, it's when things are dark you know, it's now that the Son of Man is glorified and God receives glory. And this is just such a, a, a concept. Glory is not an easy concept. You know, when we, when we come to glory, there are, there are some things about God that we can understand. Well, I say that from a finite standpoint. You know, we can understand the concept of omnipotence. We can understand the concept all-powerful. We can understand the concept of omniscient, everywhere present. But when you think about glory, like how do you describe that? You know, biblically we meet glory in, in some really interesting places. You know, you see glory 
with regards to just this awesome presence that can actually kill people. You know, when Nadab and Abihu back in Leviticus 10 and 11, when they experienced God's glory in an unhealthy frame of mind, it literally kills them. The fire goes out and, and, and it consumes them. You know, when Uzzah reaches out to uh, touch the Ark of the Covenant, which was the holder of God's glory, and he does it in a way that he shouldn't, uh, it, it kills him. It strikes him dead. When Isaiah sees the glory in Isaiah 6, he says, I am unworthy. When Peter sees the glory of the Savior, you know, as the great catch of fish, he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. I mean, so glory is, 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 is terrible. You know, it's awesome. That's where we get this idea of the fear of the Lord, right? Uh, it's, it's got, this, it, it's got this, uh, this weightiness to it. But glory is also beautiful. You know, we, we see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, and you see his splendor, and you see his glory. You, you see the beauty of this one. You see the, the loveliness, you know, when he was transfigured. Uh, the, the disciples saw his glory. When, when Moses saw his glory in, uh, in the Old Testament, in Exodus, when God passed by and showed him just the back parts of his glory, you know, Moses' face shone, you know, with a radiance that was beautiful. And so glory is, is this concept that just captures so much of who God is. It's sort of a totality, a summation of this, and it's the cross. It's the cross of Christ that is tied up with his glory. I mean, you, you cannot be a Christian. Now think about this. You, you cannot be a Christian without going through the cross. And, and that, I mean, you may say, well, duh, you know, I've been in church, I went to Sunday school, I, I know that. But that is so profound in the way that it, it, it comes to us because it, it makes, you know, sense out of so many aspects of our life. I mean, think about our sufferings. You know, if we cannot come to the glory of God outside of the cross, what does that mean for what Paul calls our light and momentary afflictions. It, it puts that in a different perspective. You know, what does it mean for our successes? We, we think our successes are tied up with our glory. But if we experience the glory of God through the cross, that's a different prism with which to, to view our lives. And Jesus is clarifying these things for us, for our disciples. He said, look, if you're going to be this community, you have to understand this. You have to understand the centrality of the cross. You have to understand its necessity for your own life. And you have to understand that my glory is wrapped up here. And we pursue that. We pursue that in the strength of the Lord. And we pursue it in a way uh, that... Uh, that commands, or you could even say it is a commandment. Jesus says a new commandment I give to you. Uh, but you could even say commends. It commends our duplication, right? It's something that we are to, uh, is to flow from us. It's that tide that flows from us. It's something that we are to uh, 
to live out. And, and specifically, what does that mean? So Jesus says, uh, verses, what is it, uh, 34, 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now you say, okay, new. Is this the first time that the command to love has ever, we've ever seen that in the Bible? And the answer to that is no. Uh, you know, the Shema, love the Lord your God uh, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, so that command has been around for a long time. But, you know, so where does its newness come from? Well, the newness comes with this next phrase. Uh, a new command that I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So that's the, the, the centrality of the newness of this command is that we love like Jesus loved. That, that we love in the same manner that Jesus loved. And so then we start asking ourselves questions. Well, what does that mean? How did Jesus love? In what manner did he love? Well, now is the Son of Man glorified. He's being betrayed. He's going to a cross. He is going to take on, you know, wrongs that he did not commit for the sake of another. He is going to donate everything about himself for the good of somebody else. That's challenging. That's really challenging. You know, and, and Jesus is coming to this community and he's saying, this is what, this is what it means to be the community. This is what it means to make tangible in this world, to make tangible in this world the, the love of Christ, to show forth his love. Now again, you know, society... Uh, pushes back against that. You know, we, we need to get what we need to get. We need to move our own agendas forward. You know, serving, that is not central to who we are or needed for who we are. Uh, this week, uh, uh, Josiah pointed me to a podcast in which uh, Scooter Braun was being, um, <laughs> was being interviewed. Scooter Braun, I didn't really know who he was. He's a talent scout. Um, he is the one who unleashed Justin Bieber on the world, so you can think whatever you want about him uh, from that uh, little, uh, that little uh, <laughs> truth. But uh, he, watching the, the rise and the fall of Justin Bieber, you know, he went through a, a really difficult time, seems to have righted the ship a little bit, but for a while we were ready to ban him from the U.S. You know, it was like, you know, so, so out there. And, and one of the things that Braun said, and I don't know where he stands with the Lord at all, but this is true. He said, you know, people aren't meant to be worshipped. People are meant to serve. And then he went on to say, you know, frequently you hear about athletes or movie stars or president CEOs of Fortune 100 companies who, you know, self-sabotage or even take their own life. But you never hear about the person serving in the soup kitchen week after week who takes their own life. 
And, and what he's capturing here is what Jesus is, is inviting us to. He's saying, look it, this is what I came to do. This is what I am calling you to do. I'm, I'm calling you to continue this ethos of giving yourself, of serving. Because that's how you're going to show the world who I am. But that's also where you're going to find your deepest meaning. That's also where you're going to find you know, who you are. It's not in the pursuit of what you can accrue and what you can get. It is much more tied to giving away than it is to getting. Again, it's really challenging. And the, the other way that this is new is, is that we are, as the community, so not only called to love as Jesus loved, but we are also called to love with the power that he gives us. You know, this is the thing that's so, that's so incredible. Jesus goes away, but what is he going to say in John 16, verse 7? I mean, this is, I think, one of the, the most remarkable statements in the scripture. Jesus is going to say in John 16, 7, says, it is for your benefit. So now, keep in mind, all of this is happening, right? This is all part of this discourse. He is telling them to love like he loves. He's telling them to be self-sacrificial. It's to your benefit, he says to the disciples, that I go away. We, we think just the opposite. We think if only Jesus were here in the flesh, it'd be so much better for me. You know, what would Jesus do? I, I, you know, it would be so much better. But Jesus says specifically, it's to your benefit that I go away. Because if I do not go, the Holy Spirit will not come. But if I go away, the Holy Spirit will come and he will take up residence in you. And that is where the power comes from, right? So that's the newness. The Old Testament says they didn't have it in the same way that we have it. You know, they didn't experience the Holy Spirit as a believer, you know, the finished work of Christ. You have an incredible ability. I mean, Jesus sets the bar high, right? Love like I love. But he doesn't set the bar high without also giving us the power, the wherewithal to do it. I have taken up residence in you. I have gone away so that the Holy Spirit can come. And because you have that Holy Spirit in you, you have the ability to live self-sacrificially. You as a believer have the ability to give it away rather than to need to get all the time. That's the newness of the command that Jesus gives us. And then he goes on to say, like, look it, this is so important. This is the way that we're going to win people. You know, we think about the mission of Jesus to evangelize the world. How is that going to happen? Well, we're going to go out. We're all going to take our mission for a number of years, and we're going to go door to door. Jesus says, you are going to love one another. And as you love one another, that is going to catch the attention of, uh, of the community. You know, sometimes we, people move and we get together as a church and we help them move. And, you know, we, I often hear, like, I don't even know these people. And here they are helping to move uh, my stuff. And, you know, there is a testimony to the community there. I often think, what's it like, you know, to move into a city or a community and not have a church uh, family to, to come around you, to help you? And, you know, so we... We tangibly, when we help people move, when we bring meals, when we do this, when we do that, we, we show the love of Christ, and that is attractive to the outside world. We win them this way. 
But it goes even deeper than that, and it presses even further into us because we know that the New Testament church, you know, had this testimony, you know, see how they love one another. But what was it that captured people's imagination? It was Jew and Gentile. It was slave and free. It was male and female. It was the, the crossing of the class distinctions. It was the crossing of, of cultures, of socioeconomic class. It was the, the crossing uh, of genders, the embracing of them in a way that they had never, ever seen before. That was what was, you know, Schaefer calls, Francis Schaefer, theologian, he says this is the final apologetic. You know, how is it that we make the case for Christ? It's not going to be in, you know, old documents and all of this. It's going to be the reality, the tangibility of the love of Christ as it comes out through us. That is the final apologetic. Let them love one another that the world may know. Jesus will repeat this again in John 17. I'm sure we'll come back to it. That the world may know that I am the Messiah. This is how, why we love one another it again is just an absolutely absolutely challenging and inviting thing challenging though because look at we need to be held accountable to this are we loving well other christians and it's interesting to me here that that jesus says you know one another He's, he's not at this point saying it's not how well you love the outsider. He's not saying that. I'm not saying that he never says that. He says we need to love our enemies, right? He says that we, we need to love our neighbor, and he gives a broad definition of neighbors. But here he is saying how well you love one another. Now, that means partially this, right, the body of Christ church, people that have identified this as their local community. That's why we... We take these, these membership vows, and it's why it's important, incidentally. You know, we, we need to have a place where we can tangibly put into practice the commands that God has given us. There has to be that accountability. So where do we show it? We, we show it here. It also means with other folks that name the name of Christ. You know, many of them that are different than us, again, culturally, ethnically, socioeconomic class, we need to find ways to engage them, to love them, to listen to them, to appreciate their point of view, to grow from their perspective, all of those things, short, to, to love them. A and Jesus says, as you do this, as you do this, then other people are going to know, and it's going to be attractive to them. Schaefer says, and if you want to read more about this from Francis Schaefer, uh, the book, The Mark of a Christian, it's, it's not very big, uh, but it's, it's all about, uh, it's basically an exposition of these verses. A and he says, this is what it means. You know, how do I know that I'm a Christian? Well, part of it is, do we care about this? I mean, does this resonate with us? Do we want to lay our lives down for another? Do we want to love somebody? If you don't see that in yourself, right, then you might have to ask yourself a question. Am I, am I really following Christ in the way that I think that I am? You know, we might be where Peter is, where we are, are la we lack self-awareness. But it's also a litmus test. Schaefer says, and, you know, this is, again, challenging. Jesus is not here saying that our failure to love all Christians proves 
that we are not Christians. So we're saying we're an imperfect community and we are going to fail in love all the time. What Jesus is saying, however, is that if I do not have the love that I should have towards all other Christians, the world has the right to make the judgment that I am not a Christian. This distinction is a vital one. If we fail to love, we fail in our love towards all Christians, we must not tear our heart out as, if though, as though that were proof that we are lost. No one except Christ has ever lived and not failed. If success and love towards our brothers in Christ were to be the standard of whether or not a man is a Christian, then there would be no Christians, right? Because everybody has failed. But, again, he says it again, Jesus gives the world a, a piece of litmus paper, a reasonable th uh, thermometer. There is a mark which, if the world does not see, allows them to conclude that person is not a Christian. And you know how many people, I mean, I, again, I don't know your stories. Maybe some of you just slipped your way in here, and you have been burned specifically because of this, because you've been part of a church community, you've been involved with Christians who are not loving. A and it has driven you away from the society. It's driven you away from the community. That's on us. That, that is our fault. I mean, if we, if we, now as speaking to the body, if we live in a way that is not loving, then the world, according to Schaefer, has the right to conclude that this is not a, 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 a uh, you know, a vetted body of Christ. So, again, Jesus is saying, this is the apologetic. This is how the world is going to know. This is what is going to draw them. This is what is going to be attractive to them. And I think you know that. Let me give you an example of just the attractiveness of this love. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, who I just appreciated so much of the way that he engaged in, in tumultuous times with Christians, with non-Christians, you know, so much of, of what he faced was with the church, right? And uh, it, it was just really, it was really uh, not a good moment for American society back in the 50s and 60s. Um, so after the beginning of the Montgomery boycott, they started the Montgomery Improvement Association, which King became the president. He became the focus of, of much white hatred. So one day as he was speaking in the First Missionary Baptist Church, big crowd, uh, he got word, this was in 1956, that his house had been bombed uh, with his wife Coretta and their 10-month-old baby in the house. He let the congregation know what was happening. He went out and he went back home. When he got there, this is what he saw. He saw a whole group uh, of African Americans brandishing guns and knives. He saw a barricade of white policemen. He was able to get inside, push through the crowd in the house to the back room where he made sure that Coretta and the baby uh, were indeed safe. It was a 10-week-old baby. Uh, back in the front room of the house, there were some white reporters who were there, uh, and they were trying to get out of the house to go file their stories, but they could not get out, obviously, because of the crowd that had gathered in front and, and were angry. This is where we see, you know, the ability to love that goes beyond ourselves. 
You know, in that moment, King had every right to be ticked. He had every right to demand justice. He had every right to every right we can ever think of, right? So he steps out on the porch, and he held up his hand for silence, trying to get the, the crowd to, to settle down by speaking in exaggerated, peaceful tones. And this is what he said. Don't get panicky. Don't do anything to panic. Don't get your weapons. If you have weapons, please take them home. He who lives by the sword will perish by the sword. Remember, that is what Jesus said. We are not advocating violence. We want to love our enemies. I want you to love our enemies. Be good to them. This is what we must live by. We must meet hate with love. At that moment, Dr. King pictures for us exactly why love is the final apology. I mean, how can you not encounter that and say, yes, there is something real there that I want to be a part of. There is something powerful there that I don't have in myself. And it leads us to the cross because, you know, as King made the line, this is Jesus' way. This is Jesus' uh, ethos. This is what Jesus prayed. Father, forgive them for they don't even know what they're doing as he hung on the cross. Brothers and sisters, you know, as we engage this passage of Scripture, our, our tendency is to be uh, petrine, to be like Peter, right? Our tendency is to say, I got this. I can do it. Even when it comes to the love command. I mean, Peter wanted good things. He wanted to follow Jesus. He wanted to lay down his life for him. But the cross tells us, no, we can't. But I've done it for you. I have done it for you. And now the promise is that I am going to live within you. And so you now can go out and you can show the world exactly the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word that meets us uh, in such deep and, and such vulnerable places. Lord, we pray that you would continue to help us to inhabit the grace that you have poured out upon us and that you would continue to help us to, to show forth to a watching world. Lord, we, we know, we know that's what you've called us to. And we're challenged by it. We're challenged by it right in our own midst. Uh, it's hard. But Lord, you've, you've called us. And you've given us the strength through your spirit. And so we pray that you would send us out in that strength. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us love and sing and wonder.